Hi, Christina. Hi, Lucin. How are you? Good. How are you? Nice to see you. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much for giving up your time today. Really, really appreciate it. And welcome to the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Fantastic. Um, I obviously I've met you um, through a couple of people online. And so I've, I've got a good understanding of, of what you do with the ADN group. And then obviously you've got your executive coaching as well. But just before we dive into the conversation, if you can give me just a little kind of a little intro, tell us a little bit about you. Um, that would be fantastic. Sure. So I'm a professional negotiator and I collaborate with the ADN group which is an international negotiation agency where we provide advisory and training to companies, government institutions, NGOs, um, and any type of organizations who need advice or help or training with their complex negotiations. So this can be crisis negotiations like hostage taking, ransomware, um, suicide negotiations, or diplomatic negotiations, commercial contract negotiations, M&As, IPOs. Um, or negotiations at home with the kids. Oh, wow. I didn't realise you did the stuff at home as well. Yeah. (laughs) As a mother, I do it every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Any type of negotiation, really, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So to start off with, I'd like to talk about negotiation itself from a a business perspective. Um, I... I bought this business from the previous owner after being an employee for several years. Okay. And I think that when I went into those conversations, it hadn't even occurred to me that negotiation was a skill that was something that I'd need to have. Like, you know, I was buying the business from someone I knew really well. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect all the, you know, the intricacies of those conversations, the emotional toll of, of them, that kind of thing. Um, and then dealing with, you know, raising finance as well. And, you know, all, all, all of the, it's kind of like all of a sudden that step into being a, a business owner just suddenly opened up this world that actually negotiation was something I should have gone and learned first, maybe rather than diving in with both feet. And I imagine you come across a lot of people that are kind of in that situation. Absolutely. I mean, we all negotiate every single day, right? Whether we're aware of it or not. Um negotiations with your children, with your partner, with your neighbors. We all negotiate every single day. And a lot of things are negotiations, but we're not necessarily realizing that we are in a negotiation. So, yeah, I'm definitely passionate about this because I've seen the results of once you start negotiating with the right tools and with tools that professionals use, how much of an impact that can have, not only on the results of the outcome, but also on the relationship, on the continuity of the relationships. Um, and so, yeah, but most of the people, indeed, they negotiate every single day, be they're aware of it or not. And then they don't realize that, wait, this is something we can learn, we can improve. Uh, we're not necessarily good at it. Uh, there are a lot of people that think they're good negotiators that are not. There are many people who think they're not good negotiators and that they are. So just the awareness um, by measuring it, you know, with concrete tools can definitely help people see, okay, where am I good? Where can I improve? How can I do that? Um, I, as I always say, I don't teach people how to negotiate better. I teach them how to become better negotiators because we are negotiators. We're all negotiators. Mm-hmm. Well, what's what's like the, the first lesson, if you like, that you, you kind of need to give people when you're working with them? Mm-hmm. It depends for what they come. So if it's training, then we provide the entire method that we use. If it's advisory, then we really sit down. And the number one question I ask them is, 
why are you doing this negotiation? So I try to dig and dig and dig until I understand what is at stake for them, until I really reach their non-negotiable and say, okay, if this is important for you, then how can we get that? And then is that necessarily through the way that you had in mind, or are there also other options to satisfy that need? So the number one question, why are you negotiating? What is your why in this negotiation? That one is crucial. Um, I've seen some of your, like some of the content you've put out on LinkedIn and some of the interviews that you, you've done previously. Um, and you talk a lot about like being able to, well, you talk about the preparation and you talk about listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me think of there's, you know, through over the last six, well, however many months it is now since it all started in, in March here in the UK in terms of COVID and lockdowns and, and that kind of thing. And there's been a few conversations where we've kind of ended up in that negotiation piece um, with clients. And, you know, from their end, like maybe they're maybe they're negotiating over price or, or or something else. And, you know, actually what they're talking about isn't the that's not the price isn't real issue. There's something else underneath. And, you know, what what do you do in that situation? What are the kind of like, what are the tactics when it's like, actually, you know, there's something else there in the background? Yeah. Well, in commercial negotiations, that's where my background is. So I, I, my first career was in finance. I used to work on um, in trading floors of investment banks and the stock exchange in Europe. Um, and these, these were very different type of negotiations, right? Then it's mainly price, what's being negotiated, price, quantity, and that's about it. However, in the real world <laughs> or in other sectors, um, it's, barely, it's rarely only the price that's at stake. You have in commercial negotiations, to keep that example, you have price, but you also have quantity, discount, delivery, the terms, uh, um, the delays, uh, marketing material, all that stuff. And if you start negotiating as a professional, you start becoming very uh, creative into what else is there to be negotiated. And then you make a list for yourself of, okay, this and this and this and that. Now, that's very useful for a lot of things. But again, before you go in, you ask yourself the question, why? Why am I doing this? And while you're there, you also try to understand why are they negotiating it? So there are three levels. There is the position. So that is what someone says they want. So whether that is verbal or in an email, written, it doesn't matter. It's the part that they communicate to you. So that's what we call the position. That is what they say they want. But then as a professional negotiator, you're not going to start negotiating on that right away before you know what's really at stake and if that's really what they want, even though they say it. So you try to, with... Uh, targeted questions with very active listening uh, by monitoring body language and listening in 5D, as I call it, to what is being said, what's not being said, how is it being said, what's being said in between the lines, what does the silence say, etc. Try to really understand what's that, what do the other person believe they can obtain, like what do they rationally think they can get out of this. So that is the objective. What is the objective that I think they can obtain? But you don't stop there either. You continue the digging and the asking and the observing and the analyzing until you try to understand what is at stake. So that is the non-negotiable for the other party. And that's rarely, rarely about price. Because if you really get to the non-negotiable, that is something that has a link with something emotional. Okay, so it can be self-worth, it can be dignity, it can be, you know, really something vital that 
they would never negotiate on. And once you understand that from a human being, and that you do through asking questions, but also truly listening to who is this person in front of me? What are their values? What is important to them? What are their beliefs? What is like the kind of education that they've had? What is the voice telling themselves? Those kind of things. When you start observing that, and then you get to the point of, okay, you know, I think I got what is at stake for this person. Then all of a sudden, with the creativity that you've taught yourself, you can pick loads of other ways to satisfy that need without necessarily giving in on what it is that they say they want, the position. And sometimes what they say they want is completely off what they really need. So if you were to start negotiating on what they say they want, you would be completely off. And even if you satisfy that, you still wouldn't satisfy their need. See what I mean? Mm, yeah. So one of the questions I'd got prepared for you was um, like sometimes you're in a negotiation and obviously the, the, the negotiations you're dealing with are they're much higher stake than, than what are, you know, I'm doing on a daily basis kind of thing. But I think sometimes in the conversations and it might be lack of skill, lack of experience, but you, you know, I kind of feel like you get to a point where you feel like you're losing and it's, and it's when you hit that non-negotiable and you kind of, you know, it's like at that point, it's like, do you accept the loss? Do you keep, do you keep trying? It's, I think that's probably quite a important moment within the negotiation. And it's like, well, actually, where do you go from there? What, what is the point where you go, actually, no, we're not done yet. Or actually this is, it's just not going to happen. We need to accept it and move on. Yeah, and in that case, do you mean the non-negotiable of the other party, of your counterpart, or of yourself? Um, I think it could be either. Yeah. In honesty, I think sometimes it's like you you just kind of go, well, I'm not I'm not budging. Mm-hmm. I've got nowhere else to go. What now? Yeah, and that's what I mean with try to understand your own non-negotiables first. Why are you in this, and what is not negotiable for you? What is your breaking point? And many people don't think about that before they go into a negotiation, but it's so important to understand until where do I go and when do I walk away? When is it finished for me? Because of ego reasons or I'm almost there reasons, people tend to go on too long in a negotiation that that is maybe already impossible. Let's say, for example, I want to sell my house and the market value is a million euros, Okay. You come to me and you say, I love your house. I really want to buy it, but my maximum budget is 500K. You can be the best negotiator in the world. The deal is just not going to happen, right? Why? Because I have the balance of power. So it's very important in a negotiation to analyze also the balance of power and try to do that in the most rational way and say, who has the balance of power here? What's at stake here? And is is, is um, agreed negotiation really possible. People tend to go on and on and on in a negotiation that's not possible, or they go on on the wrong things, for example, negotiating on the position instead of the stake. So it's very important to analyze the balance of power, but also in a rational way. I often have companies coming to me and say, this is a really difficult negotiation. I don't think we're going to have an agreement, but we're calling you in to see if there's anything we can do. And then we analyze the balance of power, and often we see it's not that much in their day, and they're um, unfavorable to them, as they imagined, because they have all the emotional load and all the personal and the relationship that's at stake. So 
when you try to pull these things out and you sit and you rationally analyze, okay, what's at stake here, that, 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 you give points and you analyze objectively who, where is the balance of power? Is there a balance here? Which one has a stronger hand? Then often you see that um, value is a perception, right? You can see something in a way. You might think, I'm definitely going to lose this negotiation, while your counterpart thinks that as well, the right. same negotiation. So it's really interesting to analyze, do I have the impression that this one is you know, impossible rationally or just an impression, a feeling? And how can I analyze that, step out of it and look at it, you know, from a professional point of view and say, what's really at stake here? What's happening here? And how can we turn the table around? The, the emotional load, I guess, can be can be crippling sometimes as well, because it's not just the emotion around the business. It's the, the emotion that's happening elsewhere in that individual's life where actually sometimes... I know when you're like your executive coaching stuff, you you talk a lot about emotional intelligence there and, and EQ there as well. So I imagine that quite often can come into play. You're like, what else is actually going on with this? It's not the business we're negotiating with. It's that individual. What else is going on with them? Yeah, exactly. What's at stake for them? What is their why? What is their belief system? What is their, you know, how do they stand in this world? And then how can you influence that? Because negotiation, many people think it's persuading someone, selling something. That's definitely not the same thing. Sales and negotiation is something completely different. It's not persuasion, it's influence. How do you influence someone's behavior? It's relatively easy to convince someone of something if you have the right tools and you know if you use uh, persuasion skills or sometimes even manipulation. However, the result is rarely going to be tangible and sustainable in time. Whereas if you influence someone and you get to know their belief system and you influence that, that they believe it's better to think differently about a certain thing, that's when you have a sustainable change of beliefs. So that one stays. And that's what we try to do in negotiation. We try to influence change and not convince anyone of it. You see the subtle difference? Yeah, I'm just thinking I had a um, a situation this week where um, I was on a sales call with the client and they were really excited about the service. And, they, you know, it was, you know, if if we'd have been face to face, they'd have been signing there and then. And then they asked me a question that was intended to create a negotiation conversation. And I I just my response just immediately ended it because it was I think it was one of those things where. Sometimes people feel like when they're being sold to, they have to negotiate, even if there isn't an actual, it's like they think it's part of that sales process. And it's, it's quite interesting when it happens in that way that they've there's no, there's nothing behind that conversation. Mm. It's just, it's something they think they need to say. Yeah, it's a bit like bargaining as well, right? People that go to on the market and they buy stuff, they think they have to get a discount. And if they don't do it, then like that's the end of the world. I mean, it happened to me yesterday. I went to the market and I was buying um, a handmade soap. It was this market of small businesses. Uh, you know, I love it when people make their own stuff out of passion. So there was this lady and she made handmade soap and handmade shampoo and handmade this and that. And I was interested in several items. And then the negotiator in me said, you know, I'm buying several items. I should negotiate the discount. But then I thought, no, I'm not going to do that because this is a small business. You know, she's doing this really out of passion. The prices are not ridiculous. I'm not going to negotiate anything at all. So I decided to buy four objects. And before walking away, she gave me a fifth one as a gift. 
You know, so I didn't ask for anything. She just gave it. And that was like a small confirmation from my end of who's know when to negotiate and when not to negotiate. Yeah. And in a sales process, errors that are often been made is that people start negotiating either too early or too late because they don't know the difference. The sales part is the com- conviction part, like uh, the flirting part where you try to show the value of something. And then once someone has an interest, shows that interest, that's when the negotiation starts, but not earlier. And then in your case, you know, you might have been in this case saying, how, what, what, what's this negotiation? You know, I didn't expect it. And then maybe block there. But once you know that negotiation is something okay and it's not necessarily bargaining, but as you rightfully said, they had the impression that they had to negotiate something. So then, you know, you can say, I'm happy to see you have an interest in this. Um, let's see what we can do. You keep the door open without saying that you will give them anything. Mm, yeah, I think it, it's that, you know, I, I need to have the best price mentality. And I'm like, and these, you know, my response is straight away is you've already got the best price and these are the reasons why. And I'd say nine out of 10 times, the, the, the person I'm talking to, they're accepting of that because it's like I've I've settled that almost fear if you like that they that they're you know being overcharged or, or something mm. like that and it, it just ends there I so said there's maybe one in ten times where the conversation gets pushed further and actually you then find out that it's their um their fear of the risk of investing in mm. marketing service or whatever it's it's that's that the problem it's so not you that see they don't you're already the going right. there yeah, you're already trying to understand what's at stake for this person. And when you go to fear, you see that's an emotion. So when you can then talk about that, you know, put the elephant in the middle of the room and say, okay, I, the, from what I'm hearing, or it seems to me that, and then you talk about it, you know, that there might be a risk of da na na, and then you put it on the table. Because if you do, let's say you're wrong, that's not what they want, and they will say, no, that's not it, it's actually this. So you still gain intel on what's happening. And if you're right, they will feel like, wow, this person hears me, understands me, and and the level of trust increases because you're not pretending it's not there. The worst thing you can do with an emotion is pretend it's not there. 100%, 100%. So the deals that you're, you're involved in, they, I mean, I know what you've you're out in Dubai at the minute, but I know you've been involved in stuff in Europe as well and all over the place. Um, as a woman at the negotiation table, I can imagine with your finance background as well, you've, you know, you've just, you've just spent your life in male dominated (laughs) places, haven't you? So, you know, how, how was that from an emotional perspective for you? Because I think it is when you're the one doing the negotiating, it can be really draining anyway, but then if you've got those kinds of things coming in too, it's, must be tough. Yes, it's been a huge growth process for me. I mean, I started in finance when I was relatively young. And indeed, on the trading floors, it's mainly men, uh, men right? The women of the banks back then, when I was on the on the trading floor, they were mainly in marketing or HR or legal. But on the trading floor itself, it was mainly men. So, you know, trying to find your place in that world without, um, while staying truthful to who you are, that's really important. And I see many young ladies who try to then, you know, become like a man. So by cutting their hair short and not wearing makeup and not wearing heels and, you know, like almost um, pretending they're not the woman at all. Um, I've never done that, but I've seen it happen a lot. And I, and I don't agree with that approach because 
as women, we have a lot of um, important skills as well that are important on a negotiation table or in any type of business. So it's by really focusing on the advantages and on the powers of everybody that we can then make an interesting group. So it, and, and the same goes exactly whether it's for female or you know uh, uh, ethnic groups or whatever it is. From the moment that we start seeing, okay, what is the skill that you're bringing to the table? Um, what is the power that you have that someone else doesn't have? And then focus on skills, but not only on uh, technical skills or languages or things like that, but also personal skills like age, gender, etc., etc. Um, and by being aware of them, you can put that forward and really get rid of the imposter syndrome uh, that women might feel on a male uh, world, in a male world. Um, but yeah, it's a growth process, and I think we're all responsible for creating that uh, balance more and more, both men and women, both leaders and juniors. Everybody has to speak up about this subject and say, you know, we're in 2020, when are we going to get rid of this, you know, ridiculous thing that's still happening um, without undermining it and yet um, yeah by empowering people to be the way they are because we need men and we need women on the negotiation table we need men and we need women in every sector and by focusing on the strength and what that brings that changes for me I noticed be it in the trading on the trading floors or on a negotiation table as soon as there's minimum one woman present the energy changes the testosterone tends to lower and all these, um, you know, like male, very macho things tend to calm down, which is better for everybody. <laughs> so I, I have noticed when, um, as soon as a woman comes in, whether that's me or another lady extra, there's something that changes about the energy and that makes people more, um, I would say, respectful, mm. um, which is, yeah, which is obviously benefits for everybody. So yeah, it was a growth process for me. I it, 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 I have had very difficult moments of thinking of here a year ago and being the only one, um, you know, like almost checking all the invitations of is there any other woman here? But then you just go through it and say, you know what? I know my skills. I know what I have to bring, and my gender is just gonna stay out of the the room because it has no importance here. I am who I am based on my skills and not based on my gender. Unless it's, you know, like a place where gender is really important and the fact that I'm a woman is an advantage or a disadvantage. And the awareness of that is sometimes enough to then turn it around. For example, we were training a, a big pharmaceutical company last month and it was they wanted us to train many, many people. So And we always train in small groups so that everybody really gets attention. So I asked my fellow uh, trainers to join me and I attributed to groups. Now there were uh, people in the Middle East, there were people here, there were people there, and there was also a group in Iran. Now, when I saw the list, it was mainly male names. Now I was born in Iran, I speak a little bit of Farsi, but not that much. I'm not Iranian, but I'm Armenian. So I knew with my Iranian name and um, me being female, that would already color the impact of the training. So I asked a male colleague to do that group and I focused on the Asia group. So it doesn't mean, you know, walk away from it. It just means be aware of it. And when it's an advantage, put it forward. When it's not an advantage, try to, you know, maneuver around it. Um, but let's not pretend it's not there. Mm. I think acknowledgement and acceptance are two really, really important skills in everything, not just in negotiation. 
there's your controllables, your uncontrollables, and being able to respond and and accept those things are are really, really powerful. And that probably comes into your executive coaching work as well. Yeah, when I do coaching, I'm I'm doing it less and less now because unfortunately I don't have time for it, but I tend to attract also male clients. So it's probably my background, but it's also the energy. I tend to have this um, ease with speaking with executives like male, 50 plus, mainly analytical brain, uh, you know, very objective and rational. Um, I guess because that was my comfort zone for a long time. And that's the type of clients that I attract. But the beauty is when you can influence them to then connect on the other skills that they also have, but they don't dare trusting yet. And that's when, yeah, beautiful changes happen. Mm. Um, I imagine everyone always asks you, who's the best negotiator, men or women? But what I want to ask you maybe is slightly different in that who, so in my head, I have this theory that as women, you know, you're a mother, I'm a mother, we have crap going on at home and, you know, husbands misbehaving and, you know, not doing the washing up or whatever it might be. And, you know, so you, you, you have all this stuff. And, and as the mother, you tend to be the central point of the family. So you're then sat at that boardroom table and it's like you've got all this stuff going on that you have to leave the other side of the door. And I think in my head for that reason, women are less emotional in these kind of um, you know, high state conversations. Certainly, again, in my experience, it's kind of like I've had to deal with men who have become quite emotional and I've had to tread very carefully in how I respond to that because I don't want to be seen as the emotional woman. Mm. So in your experience, where like what? Is you know are men emotional negotiators? Like, is it more women? Is it more men? Is it kind of does it not come into it at all? It comes into it definitely. Yes. Um, the thing is, a lot of books on negotiations have been written, and a lot of trainings have been given about the fact that you have to keep the emotions out of the trading uh, negotiation table. And I definitely disagree with that. I think that's just impossible because it's like saying, you know, during the negotiation table, you're just not going to breathe. It's impossible. Emotions are part of our being, are part of our brain. I mean, we are social, emotional beings. You can't say, I'm going to shut that part off and then I'm just going to be there and be very rational and solve everything rationally. Decision making is, is hardly ever purely rational. There's always emotions involved. We always decide with a part of unconscious bias on why we do things. So emotions are always there. That's why I always combine negotiation skill with emotional intelligence, because since your emotional part is gonna come with you wherever you go, might as well know how to deal with it, right? Might as well be aware of it, might as well develop it, might as well turn it into an ally and say, you're gonna help me. Because every emotion, from the moment you start seeing emotions as just messengers, informing you about what you feel about certain circumstance, they really become your allies. And I have absolutely no difficulty sharing emotions as well, also on the negotiation table, because we tend to think that certain emotions are okay to be shown and certain are not. For example, in finance, if you would get really angry and you know stuff on the table, that was totally acceptable uh, behavior. But if you would get tears or uh, sad about something, then that was not okay. So who gets to decide which emotion is okay and which emotion isn't, right? 
So from the moment you, you take the whole bundle and you say, you know what, we're emotional beings, it's part of life and it's okay to feel them, it's okay to express them, it's okay to let them be, then that's whole everything changes. And, and, and whether it's on an executive coaching or in leadership, the whole idea is to create this safe space for the other person to be able and allowed to feel that emotion because whatever it is that they're feeling, it's justified for them, right? Because they're feeling it. So then it means it's real. So who are you to say then, you know, don't feel it? For example, things like calm down. Have you ever heard somebody who said calm down to really calm down? No, that doesn't happen. That's just ignoring the behavior. Like they're already saying it to me whilst they're shouting. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> you're angry, but you're not supposed to be angry. So calm down. So that is, you know, not allowing a person to go through their emotions. And I think we have to stop being afraid of emotions. An emotion is nothing else than a physiological reaction to what it is that you're, that is happening. Your body reacts. So if your heart starts pumping and, you know, your, your hands get sweaty and, and, and your body is preparing you to fight or flight, and then you have someone who says, calm down, come on. You know, that we need to stop being afraid of emotions. And once we are, the fact that, you know, you had people crying in front of you, that means you have been able to create this safe space for them to do so. I mean, I've had clients who, who have cried in sessions and tell me, Luce, I haven't cried for 20 years, for 30 years. I haven't even cried when my children were born. My wife had never seen me cry. And it's nothing more than create this safe space of saying, you know, it's okay, and you're human, and I'm human, and we connect on the human level and try to stop being robots. Um, and that's how you go, yeah, quite far. Now, how you deal with the emotion, that's another story. If you're going to sit on a negotiation table and, you know, cry like a baby the whole session, that's another story. But that barely ever happens. But our fear for, for emotions and showing emotions is way worse than emotions themselves. Yeah. I think quite often as well that you only get into that situation if everything started right at the beginning in the right way. You, If you can get the building rapport right at that point, then potentially you're going to have that experience. But if you've if you didn't get that rapport bit done in the beginning and, and build that foundation, it's like it's yeah, it's it's a killer of conversation, Absolutely. I think. Yeah, building rapport is so important and taking the time to do it. And everything that happens before sitting on a negotiation table is an opportunity to build rapport, whether it's the first email you send, the first connection request on LinkedIn, everything is an opportunity to build rapport. And yeah, we, we should definitely use that. And again, especially as leaders, it's so important to create this space where people can speak up, where people can tell you, you know, I don't agree. And then you can have a healthy conversation around that because otherwise what's going to happen? People are going to not speak up to you, make mistakes, cover it up, blame others, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're going to say, oh, I have such a lousy team. No, you are such a lousy leader for having that team. I love that line. I hope my team never use it against me, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's another thing I wanted to kind of talk to you about. So like I said, when I, when I first came across you, it was to do with the negotiation stuff. And um, I, we then connected on LinkedIn. I was reading some of your content, you know, Googling, stroke, stalking you online and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I came across a couple of articles to do with your son. Okay. And, um, and it just, I found it quite inspiring, the, the work that you're doing. So like I said, you know, we're both mothers and um, my, 
with one of my children, we've had a lot of emotionally charged things go on over the years where you kind of like you've got all this stuff going on at home and you know your heart is with your child and yet you've still got to come in and do the job and make the decisions and make the decisions for your family and their welfare and that kind of thing um so there was one particular article that you put on linkedin and you were talking about deciding to move from um, paris to dubai in a really short period of time you just had some horrendous news and I I don't know how much you're happy to share now um, but you know if you could tell us a little bit about that and then I'd really like to talk about the kind of like the lessons if you like that you took from that and 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 that move that you made because it seems to have worked out fantastically for you. Yeah Um, yeah I have absolutely no problem talking about it thank you for sharing your uh, story as well I'm sorry you had to go through that Um, yeah so in 2017, we were living in Paris and we got the diagnosis that our back then six-year-old son, firstborn, had a um, yet incurable disease. It's a muscular dystrophy called Duchenne, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So in a nutshell, it means that the, that the muscles are breaking down slowly but surely. Um, and what that means is he's now nine. He can still walk, but we don't know for how long. Soon he will need a wheelchair to go around and then years later he will need help eating drinking everything um and unless a miracle cure is found a life expectancy today is around 25 years old but we don't know we don't know when the heart will give up the heart being the most important muscle right so that can happen anytime between the ages of 10 and 30 we just don't know so all of a sudden first six years you think you have a kind of healthy child and then all of a sudden boom they inform you your child is sick, there's nothing you can do, there's nothing we can do, and he's going to die. So, yeah, what do you do then? <laughs> um, and the first thing I told my husband, the first thing I asked the neurologist, the doctor, is, listen, what can I do? I mean, you want some form of control on this, right? Like, please, tell me, what can I do? And she said, absolutely nothing. So, but there must be something, just tell me, like, something, <laughs> please. And she said, you know what would be really good for him is the sun and swimming. Those two would be wonderful for his body. So we were living in the suburbs of Paris and in this very hilly city that goes up and down and up and down. And I knew that was going to be impossible to live there with a wheelchair. Um, And we've been coming to Dubai on holidays. I have a very close friend here. So we came every year and every year we were like, oh, it's a wonderful place to live. But that's it. Then you go back home and life continues. And that evening I told my husband, let's move to Dubai. You know, there's sun, there are pools everywhere, the beach. It would be wonderful for him. And um, so I'm from finance and I'm naturally very analytical and very objective and, you know, very rational. So I don't make these kind of weird decisions out of nothing. And it was just a feeling that I got of saying, let's move there. Because if the doctors are saying there's nothing we can do on the quantity of life, let's go all in on quality of life. Let's just make this like a big holiday and do all kinds of fun stuff and create memories because it doesn't matter how long we have, as long as these years are really good. Um, And my husband thought I I was like, uh, you know, going crazy and having crazy ideas until he realized I was really serious. Like, you know, let's move to Dubai, you know, what does it matter? And what does it matter how much it costs? We stay there as long as we can afford it. And then we come back. We just have like a long holiday. We just enjoy life. We go to school there. We have a daughter as well. We bring her along. And now everybody advised us against it. 
the doctors, uh, our family, obviously, uh, the teachers, everybody said, what are you doing? <laughs> but I just had this intuition that, come on, let's move to Dubai and make the best of it. However, since I'm this very rational, I actually made an Excel list of, you know, all the reasons why I wanted to go and then what would be better for him, whether it's to stay in France or to go to the UAE. And then I gave all these things a point. And then at the end, I counted. And which country do you think won? France won. Oh, what, really? Yeah. And I was so disappointed. And then I told my husband, no, but wait a second. Not everything is as important. I mean, quality of life is more important than, let's say, taxes. So we have to add ponderations. <laughs> you see how I have an intuition and I'm trying to justify it with the rational mind. Yeah. So then we added ponderations and we gave different points to different subjects. And at the end, we added, and I, I will never forget that moment. So there I go, adding the points, and bam, France wins again. So I look at my husband, and there I see this micro expression of um, being disappointed. So he was disappointed that France won. I was disappointed. Then I look at him and I said, that's our answer. That means we have to go. Otherwise, we wouldn't be disappointed. Mm -hmm. So there and then, we decided we're just going to move to Dubai. So within three months, we <laughs> paperwork everything he got the approval from his company to work i'm a freelancer i can work from anywhere Zoof, we moved to dubai put him in the best school that we could find um and it and life has been fantastic ever since really when when death is in front of you you all of a sudden value it i mean it sounds so cliche but it really is because we literally don't know how much we have maybe we have one year maybe we have 10 years maybe it's going to be the first generation healing from this we don't know Mm -hmm. So we came here, obviously the first year was very difficult, um, but once we were settled, it was really, my, 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 my job skyrocketed, my husband's job, thank God, is going well, um, he's having a good time in school, the school was wonderful for him, and, and he came out of this very uh, shy of, uh, behavior and uh, personality that he had, and I truly believe it was the right decision, but it was rationally impossible to convince my mind of why we were doing it. It was just a feeling and intuition. And it was one of the rare moments in life that I actually listened to my intuition. And yeah, here we are. The proof is not everything in life is to be analyzed and to be put in an Excel sheet. Sometimes life is to be lived. And that's what we're doing. I didn't know that bit about the Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> that's really interesting. So I am very, like I've always, if I'm making a decision I'm, and it involves numbers, I don't have confidence in my ability with numbers. So there's always a, spread, a spreadsheet for like everything. There's like 20 different spreadsheets right now that I use on a, on a weekly basis just for, for various things, business and at home. So I would be doing that. I would be creating that spell, that spreadsheet, and doing all the all the formulas to add up the points. Yeah. That's a hundred percent what I what I would do. The difference is that would be my breaking point. So if the, the second time it came out, I'd have been like, "Well, that's it. We can't go." You know, the, the numbers are telling us we've got to rely yeah. on the numbers. And yet, actually, what you did was negotiate with yourself. Absolutely, yeah. It was a big negotiation with myself. With my then after that with my husband, with my family, with everything. But he also wanted to go. And that was, seeing the deception in his eyes was like a mirror of my feeling. And that was for me the conversation, the com confirmation, sorry, that if both of us want to go, then what are we fooling ourselves here for? You know, then let's just go. Let's just jump. And we, we even told each other, you know, maybe we go, it's the wrong decision, then we come back. 
you know, France is not walking away. We can rent our house and come back. You know, it's what is the risk really, really? You know, people also tend to exaggerate risks. Let's just go and we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, sometimes you just have to then jump. I think you, you, your gut's a really powerful thing. And um, I, you know, I, I have two girls that they're, they're both older and, you know, they're, they're, there's like two things they always say, like, first of all, like mum's always right. And the second thing is it's only lost if mum can't find it. <laughs> you know, it's like they're, they're, they're like the two things. Um, but it, it is it is funny how we when you get that feeling in your, your gut and you you just know and that there actually there isn't any evidence, but you just know that's the right thing to do. And you, I don't know, you, my gut's never let me down. Mm. Well, I never dared trusting my guts. Mm. Uh, that was, again, I think I can, that was like a third or fourth time in my life that I made a decision based on guts and, and, and all four happened to be the right one. So I, I yeah, I, I definitely trusted more. I've even done a training on intuition. I wanted to rationally understand where does that come from? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, now I definitely use it, especially, I mean, we're living in a more and more complex world where things are faster and faster and we have to make more decisions based on little information or not having all the information. So we simply don't have the luxury at the time anymore to analyze all the data. There's part of rationale, there's a part of data, but then there's also a part of just decide. Otherwise, you can really get stuck into undecisiveness. Um, and that's even worse than the wrong decision, because the wrong decision, you can always, you know, turn back or, or turn around. And But I think it was also like, I felt like I didn't have a choice. I felt like I can't stay in this city because one day or another, I have to move anyway. And then where am I going to go? We even thought about moving to the Netherlands because that's where my family lives. And, you know, in this period, you really want to have the support of your family. But in the Netherlands also, there is no sun. So I said, we're just going to go. And in the beginning, we really felt one year or two. And now it's been three years and a half. And we still love it. And I hope we can continue to stay here for a long time because it's just great for all of us. And then there are all these advantages here that I didn't even think about before we came that I wasn't aware of. But that I realize here, it's actually a very special needs friendly city. If you are in a wheelchair here, you can actually really get around everywhere. And they really thought about it, whether it's parking places or the toilets, or even going to the beach, uh, beach access for, for, for wheelchairs, everything is here. So now that I've seen this, I'm like, you know, we can stay here actually forever if you want to. So yeah, we'll see, you know, but I definitely allow intuition to have a place now in decision making and negotiation and everything um yeah one of the things that you put in the um the article that i read you you were talking about um i think you said something like um like you've got to own so you talked about the fact that you're not necessarily going to have the control but you still need to own the situation and and i think that is that's probably what i've taken from this conversation with you now is that actually sometimes that, that negotiation is internal and it's it's with yourself mm. and actually even if you have no control you can still take ownership of that situation and make you know make decisions and and still create progress from that so I, I think that's really powerful yeah what I really learned through this uh, hardship is that that control is an illusion I mean, how much control do we truly have, right? I mean, as we speak, we have our heart beating for itself, our lungs doing their work, our breath doing its work. We don't control anything. It just happens. And if you would have asked anyone to predict 2020, everybody would have been wrong, right? <laughs> so what is control? 
I think if there's one thing I learned is that control is an illusion and we don't control hardly anything. But what do you do control is how do you stand up and face the day? How do you, what is your mindset? How do you make decisions? Um, and those kind of things. So then if you work on your internal powers, your confidence, your faith, your everything that has to do with you that is not dependent on anyone else, because in the end, that's the only thing that you can control. You can only control you and your behavior and your reaction, and that's it. I mean, we can't even control our kids, right? So let alone events, the world, and counterpart. Control is an illusion, and when we let go of that, it's very, very scary, because it's like you're falling and like, whoa, what now? But once you go through that fear and through that illusion you all of a sudden realize that everything was an illusion the whole idea of having control is an illusion so once you live without that i have this beautiful quote in my office that says everything is going to be fine nothing was ever in control anyway so yeah that one helps to focus on other things you know like what can i control and it's it's yeah it's really more than just your behavior and your decisions that's it and now also there's so much uncertainty in the world and so many people are living with fear right now. You know, you have the ones that are afraid of the coronavirus. You have the ones that are afraid of the vaccine. You have the ones that are afraid of uh, Trump staying president. You have the ones afraid of Joe Biden becoming president. In the end, everybody's living in fear. Fear of this, fear of that. In the end, it's fear of not being able to control what happens. Mm -hmm. So when you let go of the illusion that you control anything that happens, and that fear also dissimulates. And then you work on, you know what, whatever happens, I have the skills, the tools, the willingness, etc., to do whatever I have to do. So instead of pondering on everything that could happen, you keep that power, develop your skills, and the day when you have the information and you have to make a decision, that's when you use your skills and you make, you know, you decide what you have to do. Excellent. Lucine, that's a fantastic message and a fantastic point to sort of then draw this to a close so I just want to say a big big thank you um I guess the best place for people listening to this if they wanted to reach out to you is it LinkedIn or is there somewhere else we we can direct people to yeah it's LinkedIn I'm nowhere else um I read something about your company maybe you can help me out I'm, I'm not doing anything I'm not on Instagram I don't even have a website but my calendar is full enough, so I'm like, okay, it's fine the way it is. But one day, maybe in 2021, I need to say, you know what? We're living in a digital world. Maybe I need to do something about it. But yeah, until then, I'm only on LinkedIn. Oh, I'd, well, I'd love to. When the time comes, I'd absolutely love to help you out. Um, but again, thank you so much. And thanks thanks for all the information you shared in terms of kind of the, the, the corporate negotiation stuff. But there's so much in your personal story as well that is... Um, you know, it still is really poignant and really, really relevant to the art of negotiation. So I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christina. It was fun talking to you.